Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Darren Kendall. I am the associate pastor at Uxbridge Baptist Church. And to just give a little bit more of context about my connection with Lakeside, uh, Bruce and Glenda Dunning have known me ever since I was born. Uh, I met Steve Archibald when I was four years old as a camper at Madiba. Uh, Dan Farron was my uh, LIT leader. Uh, Allison Bangay was my boss for all six years I worked at Madiba. Uh, I met Katie Stiver at Tyndale, and Chris Weir was the best friend, uh, my best man at my wedding. And so, although I've never lived in Halliburton, every time I'm here, it feels a little bit like home. And it was at Madiba I met my wife, Karina, and together we have four kids, Ryder, Lexi, Willa, and Brea. But as an introduction, I actually want to go a little bit farther back to before I was born. Because before I was born, my parents moved to uh, Richmond Hill. And they started this process of looking for a new church. And it's a process we're probably all a little bit familiar with. And it, it can be intimidating because a church is a family. And as someone new, it can feel like we're strangers coming into a family reunion. But at Thornhill Community Church, my parents felt welcomed pretty much as soon as they walked through the door. And it wasn't because the worship was amazing or the preaching was relevant, although I'm sure it was. Uh, they felt welcomed because there was this specific family who took notice of them. And this family stepped out of the crowd and they introduced themselves. And they even invited my parents out to have lunch. And that small act of hospitality had a profound impact on my life. Because that family who invited my parents out to lunch were Bruce and Glenda Dunning. And that lunch blossomed into a friendship that brought me to Madiba as more than just a camper there for a week of camp, but my whole family was invested in Madiba. And so as the youngest of three brothers, in a lot of ways, I was just along for the ride. And God used that ride to shape me and to call me into the mission that he has had for my life. And it's a powerful testament to God's glory. And it all initiated by a small act of faithful obedience. And that's the conversation I want to have today, is how can we take advantage of everyday moments all for the glory of God? But before we jump into it, I should probably define what I mean when I say obedient faith. And what I mean when I say obedient faith is that in obedience to God's word, when we step past the limits of our own abilities and trust whatever outcome fully to God. And, and evangelism is a great example because by definition, we have no control of whether someone accepts Jesus as his or her Lord and Savior. John 6, says, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who uh, has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's an important point because all too often we can try and depend on our own arguments to try to push someone into the kingdom of God. Or we can depend on some kind of act of love to drag someone into a relationship with Jesus. But it's just not possible. Now that's not to say that God can't use our actions and our words for his spirit to work in someone. Because that's the command that we receive in 2 Corinthians 5.20, where the Apostle Paul writes, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
And so we are responsible to offer the invitation. That's our job. But we miss the mark when we depend on our own abilities instead of trusting in God and leaning into his power for God to do what only God can do. Yes, we offer the invitation, but how people respond to that invitation is out of our hands. That's God's domain. And so obedient faith, then, is stepping out in obedience and stepping back in faith. It's about being intentional to place ourselves into a proximity with others for God to work. And it goes beyond only evangelism, but evangelism is a great anchor for our conversation to to how do we practice obedient faith in everyday life. Because obedient faith isn't easy. Because it involves letting go of control. And that's almost a foreign concept in our Western thinking. Because if we think about it, we have rapid advancements in technology, in science, in wealth that has given us more control over our circumstances than ever before. And it makes sense that we want to control our circumstances because circumstances will lead us to destinations. If I'm driving a car, and to my right, I see some tropical paradise, and to my left, I see a landfill, I want the ability to be able to steer myself to some ocean bliss. If I'm living my life and there's success on my right and there's failure on my left, I want to be able to steer myself to success. It only makes sense. And it has become hardwired within Western thought. But Proverbs 19.21 tells us, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Because the problem with our desire to control everything is that we really don't. We don't have the power or the knowledge for our control to sustain us. I might say, okay, in this example, there's success on my right and there's failure on my left, But that example is way too simple to be real life. Because in reality, my life can go a million different ways. And for every one thing I control, there's a hundred things that I don't. Sure, I could eat right. I could exercise well. I could do everything in my power to stay away from all these things that could harm my health. And still at the end of the day, I can get diagnosed with a terminal disease. And so at some point, we have to acknowledge that although we feel like we're in control, we're really not. Only God is sovereign. And we start to see how big God is, then we start to understand how small we are. And that's why one of the many reasons I love the story of Job. Uh, Because if you're not familiar with the story of Job, Job is a man who loses everything. In a mere moments, he loses his amazing amount of wealth and all ten of his children. And only a few days later, he's covered head to toe in painful boils. And so Job is asking a question that we so often ask. God, why did this happen to me? And in Job 38, God answers. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundation? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blankets, when I determined its uh, boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared you may come this far but no further, your proud waves stop here? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place? So it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it. God is sovereign. Now with that said, there's two conclusions that we need to immediately reject when we're talking about stepping back in faith and allowing God to take control. The first thought is that if we yield control to God's direction, life is all going to be sunshine and rainbows. Because that's obviously not true. We see in uh, John 16, uh, 33, where Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. And if we do a quick survey of the Bible, we're going to see mixed outcomes when we look at it from a human perspective. We see, yes, that uh, God saved Daniel from the lion's den. But if we turn to Acts 7, we read that Stephen, in his faith, is still stoned to death. And this is why our faith should never be in the outcome. But our faith is in God, who is sovereign over the outcome. Because in this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus said, I have overcome the world. No, Stephen wasn't saved from physical death. But physical death isn't the problem. It's not good. And right now at Uxbridge uh, Baptist Church, we're preparing uh, for a funeral for a young mom. And it's heartbreaking. She has five kids, um, and the oldest is still in high school. But she's nearing the end of her fight with cancer. And it's hard. But our faith is not in the outcome, because we know God is sovereign. And we know that whatever happens, we'll see her again. Because Jesus defeated physical death through his death and resurrection on the cross. And so we will have trouble. That much is guaranteed. But we have faith, no matter the outcome, in the God who is sovereign over the outcome. And the second conclusion that we need to reject is is the thought that since God is sovereign... It doesn't matter what I do. It's a hard thing to understand because it is a logical conclusion. If God's will is accomplished no matter what I do, why does it matter what I do? And theologians have been struggling to answer this question since the ascension itself. And without an adequate answer, we are simply left to live in the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Because if we don't, we spit in the face of Jesus' invitation to be his hands and feet. Someone once told me that if God wanted her to be baptized, he would push her into a puddle. Yes, God is sovereign, but we are still called to walk in obedience. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For you are saved by grace. 
through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will is not a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed. But we have another problem. Because on one hand, it's hard to give up control. But on the other hand, it's uncomfortable and it can be scary to step out in faith and step forward in obedience. And I can think about playing hockey when I was a kid. And as a kid, I was determined that I was going to be a Christian influence on my teammates because none of my friends were Christian. And so I wanted to be the difference that caused my friends to ask, hey, why are you different? And so my goal was win or lose, I'm going to be a good sport. I'm never going to retaliate after a dirty hit. Um, I'm going to encourage my teammates and everything. No matter what, I have your back. But no matter how hard I tried, no one ever asked me about Jesus. And there's a famous saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I get it, because we are called to reflect Christ in all our actions. But my desire to be a Jesus superstar wasn't out of faithful obedience. It was because I was scared. Because it's safe to simply just be a good person. But what if I talked to my friends about Jesus, and what if they laughed at me? What if they made fun of me? What if they rejected me? And this is all possible because when we look in John 15, 18 to 20, Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word that I have spoken to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Acts of obedient faith will always involve some element of risk. That's just the name of the game. Because we are no longer depending on our own abilities, no longer depending on what we're capable of, but we're stepping out in faith and depending on God's abilities, on what God is capable of. And in God's power, the impossible becomes possible. Not just in big demonstrations of faith like when David kills Goliath, but suddenly ordinary experiences become avenues for God's glory. Greg Laurie, he's a pastor out in California. If you've seen the movie Jesus Revolution, you'd be familiar with his story. Um, But he talks about this story, this simple story, where he was in a mall bathroom and he was just taking care of business, when suddenly there was a man in the next stall over who starts chatting him up. Now, if you're familiar with male bathroom etiquette, (laughs) you will know this is a no-no. Guys, we don't have conversations in the bathroom, and there's a few rules to this exception. But anyways, Greg Laurie is just... He's uncomfortable, but he's open to how God might work. And so they're chatting back and forth, and then suddenly this man asks if Greg Laurie has any drugs he could sell him. 
At this point, Greg, he has placed himself in proximity for God to work. Now the question is, will he step out in faith? And so he responds, and he loosely quotes the, uh, the uh, Apostle Peter. No, I don't have any drugs to give you, but I do have something much better. And that man rededicated his life to Christ that day. Not because of some drastic or dramatic event, but because someone risked being embarrassed and rejected and offered an invitation that was beyond his ability to deliver. And I love that story because it's just so ordinary. It's a conversation between two strangers. And how easy would it have been for Greg Laurie to look the other way? Again, hard and fast rule. Guys, we don't talk in the bathroom. And if we do, it's certainly not to strangers. If it was me, I would have been tempted to just get out of there as quickly as possible. But this is the importance of seeing everything through the lens of opportunity. Because we never know what Jesus has up his sleeve. In his book, Zombie Church, Tyler Edwards, he asked this question. Say you, op- uh, say you open up your fridge. As you're looking through your fridge, you notice you don't have any milk. So you grab your car keys, you jump in the car, and you head to the store. Now, why are you at the store? To get milk? No. 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So yes, get milk while you're at the store. But while you're at the store, you should be attentive for avenues to put yourself in proximity with others so that we can glorify God in all we do and step forward in obedience and step back in faith. I see this as an interesting contrast between Jesus' disciples and the Samaritan woman in John 4. In John 4, the narrative begins, and Jesus is sitting um, beside Jacob's well. He's tired. The disciples have gone away into a Samaritan city to buy food, and Jesus is just waiting for them to come back. And as he's waiting, a woman from Samaria comes to draw water from the well. Jesus asks her if he can have a drink, and that simple request turns into a much larger conversation about salvation. And by the time that the disciples return with the food, the woman's convinced that Jesus is someone special. And so now the woman, she leaves her water jar behind, and she goes into the town, and she starts telling everyone who will listen. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? John 4, 29. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in in Jesus because of what the woman said when she testified. So when the Samaritans came to him, came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And I find it amazing that the Samaritans believed simply because of the woman's word. Because most scholars, when they look at this passage, they all agree that this woman is a social outcast. We know from her conversation with Jesus that she's had five failed marriages and that now she's living with a man that she's not even married to. And 
we know that she's come to get water in the middle of the day, which is not the typical time to get water. Most women would get water in the morning while it was still cool. But the reason that she's here in the afternoon, in the heat of the day, is because she just doesn't want to be around other people. Again, most likely because she's a social outcast. And it makes me wonder, why did the Samaritans respond to her invitation to go see Jesus when they didn't respond to the disciples' invitation to come see Jesus? And we might be able to look at it and say, well, it talks about that there's this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so it might be when the Jews, uh, when the Jewish disciples asked the Samaritans to come see Jesus, they rejected the invitation because they were Jewish. But that doesn't square with the fact that Jesus is a Jew and they so easily flock to him. The more obvious answer is simply that the disciples didn't offer the invitation. They didn't ask the Samaritans to come see Jesus because they were there for one reason and one reason only. They wanted to buy food. They weren't there to evangelize. They were there to fill their stomachs. And Jesus rebukes them for this. When the disciples try to give Jesus some food, he replies, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus told them, my food is to do the will of he who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's no time to eat. There's work to be done. The Samaritan woman recognized this. But Jesus' disciples neglected the opportunity that was right in front of them. Again, in his book, Zombie Church, Tyler Edwards continues, The truth is, the devil's job is easy. He doesn't have to make you become an axe murderer or a serial arsonist. All he has to do is keep your mind off of eternal things. To this end, he employs some wonderful tactics. He keeps us focused on the ordinary. And all he cares about is the end. If he can use money to distract you, he will. If he can use the lack of money to distract you, he will. We spend so much time worrying about errands we need to run and the day's checklist that we forget about what's essential. And that doesn't mean that every time we go to the grocery store or we're in a mall washroom that we're going to convert someone to Christ. But it does mean that we should be open and attentive to the opportunities that are available to us. And it's as easy as walking by the automatic checkout line and placing yourself in proximity to a cashier. Because why rob yourself of a potential opportunity to speak Jesus into someone's life? Maybe a smile will turn into a conversation. 
Maybe that conversation will open the door to sharing the gospel with someone, even if it's as small as inviting someone to a church event. Now you might say, but I just don't have the gift of evangelism. And that's fair, because neither do I. I've seen some people who navigate conversations about Jesus, and I'm just struggling to say hello. But the thing is, we aren't really given a choice. Because the Great Commission was given to all of us. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't recognize our spiritual gifts, which are utilized in the body of Christ. But even as valuable as spiritual gifts are, and they are valuable, they are not the be-end and end-all. That would be idolatry. Our faith is not in our spiritual gifts. Our faith is in Christ. Our faith is in God. The Bible tells us to evangelize, and so we are called to evangelize. But just knowing that I have to evangelize doesn't help me to actually evangelize. It just often makes me feel guilty when I don't. And fear is a powerful emotion And denying that it exists isn't helpful. And so instead of focusing on the end result, I want to take a step back. Because when we get overwhelmed by what we feel we're not ready for, it's easy to be paralyzed by inaction instead of thinking about steps we could take to take us in the right direction. Uh, An example I always think about is Madiba's Giant Swing. How many people have done Madiba's Giant Swing? All right, we've got a number. I first did Madiba's Giant Swing when I was about six years old. And uh, it's about, if you're not familiar with the Giant Swing, it, it's, a, it's a giant swing. It's about 40 feet, it's about 40 feet high. And so I, here I am, I put on my helmet, I tie my harness, and a cabin leader hooks me up to the cable that acts as the swing. And as I'm getting pulled to the top, I realize something about myself that I never knew. I am terribly scared of heights. Well, more specifically, I'm afraid of falling, but there's not much of a distinction when you're getting pulled 40 feet up in the air only to fall. So at this point, I'm not having a good time. My friends are cheering me on, but I'm a blubbering mess. My eyes are closed, I'm sobbing, and I'm screaming to come down as I'm holding on to my tether for dear life. My cabin leader's trying to encourage me, but I'm just not having any of it. Either you let me down slowly, or I'm staying up here forever. At this point, there's no third option. So I feel myself, I'm slowly getting lowered back to the ground. And when I open my eyes, I'm still about 30 feet up. My cabin leader asks, do you want to try it from this high? But no dice, I'm still too high. So I get lowered even further, and now I'm only about 20 feet. He asks if I want to try it again. I'm looking down, and from 20 feet, it doesn't feel like a giant swing. It just feels like a tall swing. I can do a tall swing. So I took a deep breath. At that point, we pulled a lever, pulled the lever, and sure enough, now I'm smiling and I'm laughing as I'm swinging back and forth. And by the time I get back to the ground, I'm asking my cabin leader if I can go again. But there isn't any time. 
So the next time I sign up for Giant Swing is a year later. And no, I don't go all the way to the top. But I go about 30 feet up. It wasn't until I was eight when I finally returned to the top of the Giant Swing. And I remember I, looking down. It was still high. I was still scared. But now there was a difference because there was an experience that I could pull from. And so I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, and again I pulled the lever. And again I'm smiling and I'm laughing as I'm swinging back and forth. All this to say that if I only had the option of going from the top of the giant swing, I never would have done it. But when you break down your fears into manageable steps, by, Gaia, by God's grace, we're able to grow beyond what we're capable of. So when it comes to evangelism, instead of jumping immediately into sharing your faith with a stranger or sharing your faith with a, your best friend, which might be more scary, ask yourself if there's a step that you can take to go in the right direction. In Uxbridge, my friend Johnny and I, we do prayer walks. We walk around Uxbridge and we just pray for the city. And every so often we'll have an opportunity to share our faith with someone. And there was one time where it was four of us. There was Johnny, myself, uh, Sam, and Sarah. And we were talking, about the, uh, we were talking with this man from uh, Quebec. And Johnny kind of takes control of the conversation. And he steers our conversation to talking about Jesus. And then as we're talking about Jesus, me and Johnny are kind of going back and forth as we are responding to this man's questions. And then uh, we have Sam. He's kind of jumping in every now and again. He's a little more hesitant, a little more timid, but he'll make a point every now and again. And then we have Sarah, who's just standing there. She's not saying anything. But that's the process. Because Sarah needed to be there to just see what evangelism looked like in a real sense. That was her step. For Sam, he needed to engage cautiously. He needed to be able to step in while relying on Johnny and me to kind of take care of any doubts that he might have. For me, I needed to see Johnny and learn how he navigates a conversation towards Jesus. And so, it's a journey, and we all need to take that step, stepping forward in obedience and stepping back in faith. Because acts of obedience are never going to be easy, but we can make them easier if we're honest about our hesitations and find manageable avenues to address them. I love in 1 Samuel 17 when, Jesus, uh, when David answers Saul's questions about fighting Goliath. Saul's telling David, there's no way. You're a kid. He's a giant. He's been a warrior since the time you were born. There's no chance you're going to be able to defeat him. But in 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37, David answers, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried it off, a, a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. 
Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David's act of obedient faith was built on a foundation of God's continued faithfulness. It's a journey, but we have to understand the journey. And so I want you to imagine yourself. You're in a grocery store. You're here to get some milk, but you're not here to get some milk. You're here to glorify God. The first step is to determine your availability. Because I have four kids. So I understand there's sometimes you're just not going to be sharing Jesus. Maybe you've walked through the cereal aisle and your oldest is throwing a temper tantrum because you walked right past the Lucky Charms. And your three youngest kids, they're trying to fight over who gets to sit in the cart. At that point, (laughs) you're probably not going to be having conversations with anyone. We can still reflect Christ in our actions. But sometimes, sometimes it's not going to happen. But today, you've lucked out. Maybe your kids are well-behaved, or maybe they're at home with your spouse. The second step is to actually avail yourself to the opportunity. And so you walk by the empty self-checkout, and you stand behind a woman who just has a massive grocery order. And as you wait, you pray. Because whether you are entirely comfortable talking with a stranger or whether you're like me and you're starting to freak out a little bit, either way, God needs to take the lead. In John 15, Jesus says, Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. And so my prayers usually go something like this. God, not sure what you want me to do, but I'm here. I'm available. God, be my strength and my weakness. By your spirit, give me courage to step out beyond what I'm comfortable to do and lead me in your will. And then as you step out in obedience, allow your faith to lead you because God is in control. You're just here for the ride. So sometimes when I'm talking with someone and if they're a complete stranger, sometimes it can be like I'm talking with an old friend and I just feel the conversation comes easy and I feel that moment when I can transition into asking about Jesus. Other times, I can't think of a single thing to say after I say, hey, how's it going? At that point, I just smile and go along with my day. Because again, the goal isn't the outcome. It's only to pay attention to God's leading and follow in his footsteps. Maybe a drug addict will rededicate his life to Christ. Maybe nothing will happen. 
Maybe someone yells and screams at you. The goal is obedience. The outcome we leave to God. And again, acts of obedient faith are not only evangelism. Obedient faith is walking in all the, God, in all the good works God has prepared for us to walk. Ephesians 2.10. Obedient faith is tithing. It's serving. It's loving. It's giving. It's caring. And the list goes on and on and on. Obedient faith is walking in the commands of the Bible through the power of God's Spirit as we step forward in obedience by our natural abilities and step back as we allow God's will to determine the outcome. And before we end the conversation, I want to make an important note. Because recently I was having a conversation with a senior in my church, and she was almost in tears because she was talking about what she thought was her lack of faith. And she was telling me a story of how she had a medical appointment. And she can't drive, so she makes a call, and someone sends a driver to take her to this medical appointment. And as they're driving, a snowstorm hits. And so this woman, she asked the driver to turn around and go back home. And now she's looking at me, and she's crying, saying, was that a lack of faith? Should I have trusted that God would sustain me through the snowstorm? And without going into a whole completely different sermon, it's important to understand faith in the context of biblical commands. Because the Bible is sufficient, but it's not exhaustive knowledge. It's not going to give you the details of every circumstance you're ever going to encounter. It's going to give you guiding principles, but it's not going to give you the details. The Bible tells us to evangelize, so we evangelize. But the Bible is silent on what to do in a snowstorm, and so that becomes an entirely different issue. The conversation we had was, okay, so you're in the car, you see the snowstorm. Think about the Bible. Do you have any direction? No, you don't got any direction? Okay, then pray. Pray. See if the Spirit will lead you in any direction. Because maybe there is something out there that you just don't know. And if you don't feel like the Spirit's leading you in any direction, then God has given us our abilities for a reason. He has given us logic and reason. And so if you don't feel any biblical mandates, if you don't feel God leading you in any direction, and you're sitting there and you're saying, hey, from what I understand, going into a snowstorm isn't a great idea, then that's not a lack of faith. But obedient faith is walking in the commands of the Bible through the power of God's Spirit as we step forward in obedience by our natural abilities and step back as we allow God's will to determine the outcome. It's not easy, but it's also not optional. Because you were saved, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for you to do. The question is, Are we observant? 
are we focused? Is our attention on God? Or are we distracted by all the other things that are going on? Because life is busy. But God is at work. And the first step is to love. Love God and love people. I don't remember where I heard the quote, but I do remember I read the quote where someone said, if you want to be a winner of souls, you must first be a weeper of souls. So will we? Will we go? Will we love? Will we speak? Let's pray. God, you are so good. And we each have our own journeys, God, of your faithfulness. We each have the testimony of how you have worked in our lives. And we have the Bible, God, where we see again and again, God, your love for us, God. And we're told that your love endures forever to all generations, God. And so we are so thankful. God, we are so thankful for Jesus, who is our source of hope, God. For in Jesus, God, we have been reconciled to the Father. God, through Jesus, we have been saved. God, and we are so thankful. God, the job is not done. As we look around in the world, and (laughs) the world sometimes feels crazy, sometimes feels chaotic, sometimes feels like we are just in a little raft being tossed around by the sea. But God, you are in control of the sea. So God, as life moves, we follow your moving, God. We follow your instructions. We follow your commands. God, we place ourselves willingly and openly for you to work through us. And we know that, God, you are so powerful that you can do everything in your own power. And yet, in your goodness and in your love, you have invited us to participate as your body. God, we are so thankful. We just ask, God, that you take control. That in our weakness, God, you are strong. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.